so excited to welcome you to Real Woman, Real Torah, a project of Bacheva Learning Center. We're here to offer you an authentic Torah learning experience, produced for women, by women. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our second episode on this topic of Mitzvah Asik Shazman Grama. In the last episode with Adi Bitter, we discussed sort of an overview of this topic as it appears in Halacha. We discussed some of the reasons given in Halachic sources for why women are exempt um, and, you know, sort of understanding um, if and, and why women are allowed to perform these mitzvahs voluntarily and what is the significance of those mitzvahs when women do perform them voluntarily. Um, so that was a really great conversation. If you haven't listened to the first episode yet, I recommend you listen to that. Um, in this episode, we're going to be talking with Chava Goodman, who is a an incredible teacher and has, is also the author of this course that we just put out. Um, she's taught many courses for us in the past and did an incredible job researching and putting together the sources for this course. She also happens to be my sister. Um, so it's very exciting to have her here with us. Um, okay, so Clava, you spent a lot of time um, researching this topic of Mrs. Asi Shazman Groma, looking at tons and tons of sources. We obviously had to limit what we actually put into the course. Um, but I'm curious to hear from you in the course of your research, you know, what were some things that you discovered that were surprising or interesting that you think would be, um, you know, imp- you know, empowering or meaningful for women to hear? Um, okay. Thank you, Hadassah, for having me join. Um, so I did, I did do quite a bit of research. And one of the first things I noticed that was really interesting about this topic is that I think most people are familiar with this rule that women are exempt from time-bound positive mitzvahs. Um, but when you're actually doing the research, there's almost as many exceptions as mitzvahs that do fall into the category of this rule. And I thought that was really interesting because in my mind, it was like women don't do time-bound mitzvahs. And then when you look at um, the details and you look deeper at the topic halachically, um, you see that there's actually quite a few exceptions, about seven, um, that women, which are positive time-bound mitzvahs that women are obligated in. And so that just kind of taking that at face value was kind of signified to me that there's something deeper here, right? We have this, you know, it's sort of on the surface seems like this rule is telling us women don't have a relationship with certain parts of Torah. There's certain parts of Torah that don't really relate to them that are just for men. Um, But when you look a little more closely, it seems more complex than that. And it seems like there's deeper significance to which mitzvahs women are exempt from and which ones they aren't, because there are quite a few positive time out mitzvahs that women are actually obligated in um, equally um, and are required to perform. Um, So that was the first thing, just noticing that the rule was not as simple as it seems. Um, And one other thing that I thought was very interesting um, when learning the halacha, and it really only, I really only understood it more after I um, explored the Hasidus and the Kabbalah behind this topic. But we find in a couple places um, when we're talking about how women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs, how they're actually sort of very connected to the way men perform these mitzvahs. Um, so one example is when we look talk about voluntary performance, whether women can perform these mitzvahs even though they're not commanded. Um, and 
So we find some sources that describe how the voluntary performance is valuable, um, specifically the Ridfa, um, who's a Spanish uh, commentator on the Talmud from 13, 1400s, uh, 12 and 1300s, I think. So 13th and 14th century. Um, and he talks about how voluntary performance does have value, um, although it's not the same as being commanded to do something. Um, but he also says it has value if it's done um, in the way that Hashem commanded to the people that he did command it to, um, which I thought was very interesting. So if we would apply that to women, right, it does have value if we perform mitzvahs, time-bound mitzvahs that we're not obligated in, um, if we do them in the way that they were commanded to men. Um, and we have this idea again when we talk about whether women can make a bracha, on time-bound mitzvahs, right? Is it considered uh, uh, using Hashem's name in vain, right? A bracha levatala to make a blessing on a mitzvah that we were not actually commanded by Hashem to do. Um, and the commentary specifically asks about the word vitzivanu, because when we typically say a bracha, we say, that he sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us. So can we use that word commanded us when we say the bracha and perform a mitzvah that we were actually not commanded to do? Um, and the Shulchan Aruch Harav, we see this in the Shulchan Aruch Harav, and we also see it in um, the Ran, both mention this idea that women can say the word vitzivanu when they're making a blessing on a time-bound mitzvah they're exempt from because men are commanded to do it. And since men are commanded to do it, women can say the word vitzivanu, which is a very um, interesting answer and somewhat perplexing. But so this stood out to me, this theme that there's, when women perform these mitzvahs, they're kind of connected or interconnected to the way men are performing them. So are we differentiating between men and women or are we not, right? So that kind of, Theme came up a couple times and was very interesting. Um, and as we explore the Kabbalah and Chassidus, we'll see that those ideas are really um, answered um, and better understood. Cool. That's great. Yeah. I feel like a lot of those ideas you mentioned um, end up taking on more significance once we get into the more, I guess, mystical understanding of this concept. So in our last episode, we spoke about some of the – there's lots of reasons given in, like, more contemporary halachic sources. It doesn't really appear so much in, like, the earlier sources, but, like, in the later contemporary halachic, you know, sources, there's more discussion about the reasons for why women are exempt. Um, and I feel like a lot of them take a more, I guess, practical, pragmatic approach. Um, I guess maybe with the exception of Rav Tom Hirsch, who has a little bit of like a different approach, but the other ones seem to be more pragmatic of like women have their time is occupied with other things, you know, taking care of their families, etc. Um, but if you look at the view of Kabbalah and Chassid, it seems to be taking like a totally different angle, um, starting with the Arizal, um, totally different angle on this whole notion of women being exempt from time-bound mitzvahs. And actually that idea you mentioned at the beginning about there being so many exceptions, I feel like that... I feel like that actually makes a lot more sense once you understand this angle of like, you know, the reason why halacha is going to codify it as women are exempt from time-bound mitzvahs, even though there are so many exceptions to that rule, is because there's something intrinsically connected. Um, there's an intrinsic connection between women and this concept of time-bound mitzvahs and sort of them being, you know, not sort of having a connection connection to Torah in a different way. Um, anyway, we'll get back to that later. Um, but yeah, maybe you can give us like a little bit of an overview. Yeah. We explored a few sources, but there's many, many more in Kabbalah and Hasidus 
um, and how it views this concept of time bound mitzvahs. So can you just give us sort of like a, an overview of what, what Kabbalah Hasidus says? Sure. Um, so the first is right. The foundational idea of male and female, um, and mitzvahs time bound and non-time bound, um, right. We kind of know that Kabbalah, um, and Hasidus really show us how everything we experience practically, um, in our tangible world is really an expression of a godly reality because the foundation of this world and the life force, um, that's causing it to be right is God. So everything in this world is a reflection of Hashem and perhaps our service and maybe revealing and expressing, um, these different aspects of God. So, right. So the first is male and female, masculine and feminine. Um, when we look at, um, First of all, Hashem, right, is has both masculine and feminine qualities. He's neither male nor female. He has both aspects in him, right? Um, and we know the Jewish soul is made in the image of Hashem. And the Jewish soul is actually made of the male and female. And they're really two parts of one whole. And we're told um, that these two halves um, get separated um, when they, you know, come down into this world of physical reality. Um, and they're separated into two bodies, but the soul is one. Um, even before marriage, before those two halves find each other and marry, um, those are two halves of actually one entity, one soul. Um, and Kabbalah describes how there's certain areas of these two halves where there's a lot of overlap and the two halves of the soul are really unified. And then there's certain areas where they kind of branch out and are separate. I kind of like to think of it sort of like a tree trunk. You know, like the trunk is where they're really unified. And then there's branches, you know, male branches and female branches. Um, and Kabbalah describes how really the male and female in the area of time, masculine and feminine are completely merged and unified. So through the man performing the time bound mitzvahs, the woman um, is performing them because she's completely unified with him in that part of the soul. Um, and the aspects of the soul that um, are not bound by time, so positive mitzvahs that are not time-bound or negative mitzvahs, uh, correspond to parts of the soul where they're not completely merged, and therefore they're both independently responsible to perform those. So really what we're talking about here when we talk about this idea of one soul um, and how the male and female are really two halves of this single entity, um, we're showing firstly that women really are uh, connected to these mitzvahs. Um, but the difference is in practice. The female half of the soul doesn't need to practically perform these. Um, and we'll go into this a little bit more, but why? Um, the practical end of the time-bound mitzvahs and things that are constrained by time um, applies to the men, the male half more. Um, but the woman is still performing them right through because they're one they're one entity and then there are areas where they really differentiate and both have independent responsibility um so that so that's kind of the foundational idea and then getting a little more specifically so what is the female role why do women not perform these time bound mitzvahs in practice even though they are part of this one soul right um and you know they they must be connected to these mitzvahs too um, and why are men focusing in practice on the time-bound mitzvahs, right? So we have this idea, um, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains um, 
this idea um, based on um, a classic Pasuk, right? A classic verse talking about how the Torah was transmitted, actually. It's described how the Torah was transmitted differently to men and women, right? We have this classic Pasuk, um, so you should say to the house of Yaakov, which represents the woman of the Jewish people, and you should tell to the sons of Israel, which represent the men, the male half of the population. So um, there's two midrashim um, that are classically uh, taught on this Pasuk, um, and they both describe how the, the Torah was delivered to men in a more exacting, detailed way. Um, and some say even kind of mentioning the consequences of not fulfilling the mitzvahs with a little more harshness. And to the woman, the Torah was delivered in a broader, more general way. Um, and it says with more encouraging, soft words that kind of are inspirational um, and encouraging, more positive terms. Um, and the rabbi explains, he, he explains what the significance of this is, okay? So there's actually two um, midrashim. The midrash rabbah describes the way women receive the Torah as um, kind of a summarized version of the Torah. They kind of got the main points, the key points. They kind of got a condensed summary, the same way that if you were um, teaching, you know, five times five to a three-year-old, you might simplify it and try to take some of the concept out to make it more easily understandable. Um, but the Mechilta actually describes the way woman, the woman received the Torah as not really a summary, but that they got the core um, foundational elements of the Torah um, from which the rest of the Torah is derived. So they kind of got the a, a very potent, um, concentrated form of Torah, right? The same way that the Ten Commandments, the Sarasadibros, contain all the other mitzvahs, um, and they can really be derived from those ten. Um, the Jewish woman received the Torah um, in a more potent, uh, raw form that really contained all the aspects and all the details, um, sort of like the way a seed has all the DNA and all the um, different qualities and characteristics of the plant that's going to come out of it, but it's kind of in a more hidden, condensed form. Um, so, you know, what, we're, what we see from this is, again, right, this idea that women are inherently bound and connected to all the mitzvahs of the Torah. They have the same bond to all the mitzvahs in the Torah, whether or not they're performing them practically. Um, and the Labavitcher Rebbe explains, why is this? Why did the woman... Why was the Torah transmitted to women differently? Because they have a different um, inherent strength in their service of God, um, right? They inherently serve Hashem with more faith. They have a natural tendency to strong faith um, and, you know, like this inherent passionate faith to Hashem. Um, and that's why we define, right? We see that the Torah defines the Jewish identity of a child um, as based on the mother, right? Whether or not the father's Jewish, if the mother's Jewish, um, that inherent faith um, and passion towards Hashem is, is there um, if the mother was a Jewish mother. Um, whereas the father, we see, determines more details about a child, which tribe he's from, and more particular specifics of how that child will, um, that child's path in serving Hashem. His tribe, whether he's a Kohen or not, those things are determined by the father. So, we're starting to see, according to Chassidus, how there is a differentiation in the practical um, roles of the masculine and feminine in the world. Um, 
And, and like we said, right, the time, the aspect of time and detail is more dedicated to the male because the concept of male in Kabbalah is this idea of raw, powerful potential um, that needs to be uh, captured and, um, and um, drawn into time and space and details of the world, right? Kind of like, again, the seed, um, needing the potential of a seed, right? That's captured in there needing to be um, brought into a child or into a, a complete plant, right? A complete uh, relatable, um, accessible thing in this practical world. Um, that's confined by time and space. Whereas the woman by nature is more all connected to time and space inherently. And her job is to take her faith and her commitment and use that to unearth what's in the physical world and what's already in time and space and, and express and reveal that that's really connected to God and really not limited by time and space. So they're both working from two different directions um, in a certain sense, in in revealing godliness in the world. Um, and like we said, there's areas of overlap and areas where they both have independent performance, but their modes of service are different. And that's why practically the male half is the one performing the time-bound mitzvahs and the female half doesn't need to perform those practically because her focus is really on taking what's already in time and space um, She's already right bound to birthing a child and and bound to the practical world. She's not rooted in the potential the way the male is and working on trying to take that potential and narrow it down into something accessible, but more about taking what's practical and exposing and expressing how it's really higher than time and space. Um, and it's really coming from a godly source. Hopefully that made sense. Wow, that was really great. That was a... Uh... Very well, very well said. Um, so maybe can you connect this back to what you were saying earlier about um, the Tivan, like the Ritva and the Ran and how they how they sort of seem to sort of emphasize this idea that the reason why women can say the bracha and the reason why um, women can do the mitzvahs is because they're, they're in some way, can, they're sort of including themselves in the mitzvah that the man is doing. So maybe you can like kind of bring that back in. Right, right. So I think I think those those halachic, uh, that halachic reasoning um, that when you looked at it at the surface um, seems kind of perplexing. Like how can women say vanu when they make a bracha? How can they say they're commanded because men are commanded? That doesn't seem to make sense, right? But really we're saying first of, firstly that the male and female are both one, right? So through the male performing these mitzvahs, she is fulfilling them. Um, through that part of our soul where, and in the area of time, we said that the souls are really merged. Um, the part of the soul that's represented by time. Um, and therefore she really is, she, it's really one soul that is commanded to do these mitzvahs. So she really is commanded, right? And like we said, the Torah was delivered in different formats to them, right? But they all uh, all both the female and male of the soul receive the entire Torah, right? It's more about the the practical applications where where um, the male and female defer, right? And again, in terms of the voluntary performance, um, she is in a sense commanded the mitzvah the same way a male is, right? Because they're part of one soul. Um, she doesn't need to do it practically, but if she does, she's doing it the way her soul, right? Her complete. Um, you know, the complete soul was commanded because she relates to Torah 
um, and it has the same bond to the commandments as the male, right? It's just the modes of transmission were different because our practical roles, um, you know, are we're both approaching it from different angles. The man and woman are kind of revealing godliness from two different and- angles and working together, um, right? Similar to that idea of like the seed and the child, right? The male provide and the man provides that potential seed. Um, that's something very powerful and potent. Um, and the woman's job is to take that and develop it into something usable and practical. So she's inherently bound with the practical world and really working to reveal what's hidden um, in time and space, whereas the man is really about taking something that's beyond time and space, a very unlimited potential, and really confining it um, and bringing it into something very physical um, and I guess that's what time-bound means, right? Time-bound is reflecting that idea of the limitations of physicality. Right. I think it's also something I thought that was interesting in that sikha is that it also connects that idea of like woman's relationship to Zmangrama to woman's relationship to Talmud Torah in general. Because on the one hand, women don't have an obligation, like they don't have a chiv in Talmud Torah. Um, but, you mm-hmm. know, like, you know, according to, you know, the Shulchan Aruch Harav, like women do make a bracha with, every morning on you know, the mitzvah of, on Berchel Zatara. Um, so, and he sort of speaks the same idea, because it's similar to this mangrama where we can make a bracha even though we're not technically obligated in that mitzvah, which is that, you know, women have a relationship to the entire Torah, right? Like they, they're still making a bracha because there's still this connection because we were given that claw, right. that like general, those those foundational principles of Torah, like we have a relationship to the entire Torah, um, even if we don't have that, even if it's not, the way we relate to it is not in that way of like, it coming down into that chiyuv, uh, in that particular you know framework, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and then so right. Wh- so the halacha is primarily talking about practice, right? So which is why right, women in practice don't necessarily have the same connection to those mitzvahs in practice, but inherently their soul is right. They're part of that one soul that was commanded. Um, although, yeah, in reality and practical reality it comes out differently. Yeah, yeah. And just one other idea that this might be beyond the scope of this podcast, but at the very beginning of the course that we that we put out, um, we had a whole sort of somewhat complex halakhic discussion about how to define Zaman Grama. Um, like, what does Zaman Grama mean? So without getting into too much of the details, but, you know, one approach to understanding Zaman Grama was more technical of like Zaman Grama means that there's times you're obligated and times that you're not. And to me, when I was like looking at some of these later sources that talk about the, the reasoning for why women are exempt, that seemed to me much more associated with, you know, these, these more pragmatic reasons, right? If the reason why women are exempt is for pragmatic reasons because they have other things that they need to be occupying their time with, then it would make sense to define Zmangrama as just like there's it has to be done at a specific time. Um, you know, just for because there's a time that you have to do and a time that you don't. But there was another sort of more subtle understanding of Zmangrama, which is that Zmangrama doesn't just mean that technically there's a time that you don't do it. But Zmangrama means that there's a time that Tyra dictates it's a special time for this mitzvah. Not just because it's like practically not possible to do it all the time, but because Tyra sanctifies a specific time for that mitzvah, that's what we call Zmangrama. And I feel like that's much more connected to this whole sort of Hasidic approach to Zmangrama, which is that the reason why women are exempt from Zmangrama is not necessarily for pragmatic reasons, but because there's their avida, like their mode of service of Hashem, has less to do with bringing godliness into the confines of time and space and more to do with sort of transcending those limits of time and space. Um, and therefore, um, like, 
what would defines mangrama, what defines something which which would require that type of idea of bringing spirituality into the confines of time would be specifically when Tyra is dictating that this time is sanctified for this mitzvah. Does, it, does that make sense? Like meaning like, yes, yes. Um, although it's interesting that, um, right. I, I think even on the, if you look at it practically, that's Mangrama is practic about, you know, practically when, if there's any time limit to a mitzvah, it becomes time bound. So even according to that view, I think this does, that does relate to the Hasidus because Hasidus is telling you that women are not about um, um, a woman's role is not about being in the confines of time. Um, although maybe now that you were speaking, I was thinking maybe this can also explain the exceptions. Like, you know, there's a lot of time bound things that women must do. Um, and maybe because it has to do with wh whether um, it's about, this is just a thought that I had now. Maybe if you're kind of bringing both these views together, the pragmatic and, you know, this time has an inherent sanctity that God designated for this mitzvah. Um, maybe the ones women have to perform, it seems to me, might be more related to that second category, um, like uh, matzah on Pesach, um, Shabbos right? Mostly holiday related things, right? Also Hanukkah and Purim, um, maybe might be related um, to that second category more. I'm just wondering, because I, I think the Hasidus could really explain both. Do you know what I mean? That, that both in terms of what's pragmatic, um, women would be exempt if there's pragmatically, it's about the time because they don't need to be so worried about time. They need to be more focused on transcending time. Um, but also this idea of, right, this perspective that time bound is defined on whether Hashem designated this time for something specific or not, um, not about pragmatics, um, might also kind of be illuminated by this idea in Chassidus because maybe it's explaining those exceptions, um, more, right? There are certain, right, we said in general time bound things, women don't have to fulfill independently, but there are certain ones they do. And maybe because there's, those ones have a certain significance um, to women independently, individually, um, in terms of their um, practical um, connection to them. I don't know. Um, I, you know, I, I could see it both ways. Like, like I can see how the Hasidist explains really both um, of those perspectives on what time bound means. Yeah, it's almost like Hasidist is saying, like, okay, so in general, this Zmangrama is this area which like women don't pr don't have a practical relationship to um which is why they're not don't have an obligation in it but because they have a relationship to like the claw the general principles of Torah, when they do it it has its full significance um and then these exceptions are sort of things which the Torah is telling us like women do have a unique relationship to these mitzvahs in and of themselves even though they might also be time bound right is that kind of what you're saying right Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> and, and then, and then one more. Actually, another idea that I actually thought of when I, in our last when I was talking to Adi in our last episode, because she was actually bringing up that what you brought up at the beginning, which is that you know we define it as like women are exempt from time bound mitzvahs. That's how the Mishnah defines it. But if you actually look at it, like there's almost more exceptions than there are like mitzvahs within the rule, especially if you include mitzvahs So like, mm -hmm. so, so the question kind of comes up of like, why would they choose to define it that way? Why don't they just give us a list of mitzvahs women are exempt from? Like, why would they try to like define it in this category of zaman grama if like 
there's not even that many mitzvahs that like a lot of mitzvahs don't even fall like who have fall, that are in that category women are exempt from um and there's lots of and, and on the flip side there's mitzvahs that women are exempt from that are not zaman grama mitzvahs um but right. i think i think again like going back to this idea that we're discussing here in kabbalah and Chassidus, the reason maybe maybe the reason why the mishnah choose to formulate it that way is because it's trying to tell us something deeper or more you know profound about this concept of the relationship between you know the feminine and Saman Grama in general, right? Which is why it's formulated that way, even though there are mm-hmm. so many exceptions. Mm-hmm. Right. That there's this inherent um, relationship with time um, that's different for women versus men, right? We inherently um, relate to time in a different type of way. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one more thing I think is also like, like I feel like, you know, when if there's another sort of thing that I think is unique about this sort of, angle of Kabbalah and Hasidus is that, you know, the other reasons that we, that are discussed in sort of the halachic sources, like, you know, sometimes women might write, might relate to it. And sometimes certainly at different stages of life, you know, women won't necessarily relate to it or in different, you know, eras or, or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think when we start looking at it from the perspective of Kabbalah and Hasidus, then it's almost, it's not so much about what's practically going on in your life. That's not necessarily the reason there's something much more cosmic you know, that's behind this exemption, you know? Yes. Um, yes, right. Like that idea also, Kaban Chassidus, when we talk about the masculine and the feminine, right, the male is compared to the sun, right, that source of energy and potential, and the woman's compared to the moon, um, right, taking that light and and sharing it um, in an accessible way, right? And the moon inherently has these cycles. Women are inherently bound with time. They inherently have cycles naturally, um, and men don't naturally. So they're really, they're really coming from two different aspects of existence um, and reality and both trying to merge, um, working from two different directions. Um, right, right. Yeah, just that idea of time is inherent in woman. You see that naturally, right, in, in our world. Um, you see that reflected in nature. Um, right. Yeah, and we're really working to move outside of that where men have that opposite relationship with time. Thank you so much, Chava. That was really um, incredible, really beautifully said. And I think this really gives a lot of insight into everything that we've discussed already about the concept of Mangrama and how to just like a bigger picture um, of where this comes into, you know, the the, the a cosmic understanding of Tyra and um, our relationship to Hashem in general. So thank you so much. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.